Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Just ahead on the program, Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee tells us about her debut release, White Trash Cinderella. Then our series highlighting local musicians. Speaking of music, today we'll feature the Atlanta band Chrome Castle. But first, today is the Mexican holiday of Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, where families honor their deceased loved ones with celebration. It's believed that tonight the veil between the spirit world and the real world thins so that souls of the past can reunite with the living. This Sunday, November 6th, Oakland Cemetery will host a Day of the Dead festival in honor of the holiday. And recently, Lois spoke about the upcoming celebration with Atlanta's Consul General of Mexico, Javier Diaz de Leon, as well as Oakland Cemetery's Director of Special Events, Mary Fernandez. The Consul General began by explaining the history of the holiday. As is the case of so many traditions and so many of our cultural traditions in Mexico. It is a mixture of uh, of indigenous pre-Hispanic traditions that came way before Europeans landed in the shores of Mexico and the Americas. And uh, and then when that happened, when colonization happened uh, in the case of Mexico by the Spanish crown, uh, there was, you know, there was a a mixture of, uh, of those uh, traditions that were originated by pre-Hispanic cultures and some of the traditions, of course, that came with Spaniards, mostly religious and mostly, of course, Catholic. Uh, And that is the case of the Day of the Dead celebration because, of course, uh, it gets mixed and it gets assimilated because it was very much a part of the indigenous population of Mexico uh, during the colonial years and of course up until today and uh, and one of the ways that the crown that the spanish crown dealt with it was to assimilate it into the into the catholic faith uh, so that's how it was you know uh, assimilated and part elements of, of the celebration have western uh, catholic elements into it some of them don't and one of the western catholic elements is exactly what you mentioned lois which is you know the pairing with with all saints day yes now, how is the holiday celebrated differently in Mexico and Central America than in the U.S.? Well, you know, the Day of the Dead celebration in Mexico, first of all, is all about paying tribute and paying homage to family and to dead uh, people who have passed away, to our forebears, and it's a celebration. It's not about, you know, scaring anybody. It's not about horror. It's not macabre at all. It's more like a celebration of a night in, in which, according to the traditions of the indigenous cultures in Mexico, those members of our family who have passed away come back during the night between uh, November 1st and, uh, and November 2nd. During that night, their spirits come and there is a joyous celebration of, of a gathering with them. Uh, and that is the core of the celebration. Yes. Mary, how did the Oakland Cemetery partnership with the Mexican Consulate and Institute of Mexican Culture come about? We've partnered with the Mexican Consulate and the Institute of Mexican Culture several times in the past for 
various festivals, having performances at our annual Sunday in the Park celebration. Uh, and so we just saw a really wonderful opportunity to continue to use Oakland as a way to highlight um, you know, its importance as a public space uh, and its importance as a site that can reveal universal themes um, across all of the individuals that call Atlanta home and all the different cultures that call Atlanta home. As the Consul General just explained, this isn't about anything scary. In European culture, cemeteries, skulls, and the dead have frightening connotations. Why does Day of the Dead evoke a joyous relationship with the deceased? If you go to Mexico and you have the opportunity, and I strongly suggest and I strongly recommend doing that if you have the chance to do it sometime, uh, to, to go to some of the celebrations that happen in indigenous populations in Mexico around the Day of the Dead, uh, during the night of November 1st and between November 1st and November 2nd, a lot of these celebrations happen at cemeteries. For example, one of the most famous ones happens in the, in the island of Janitzio, which is in the middle of the lake of Pascuaro. That's, that is in the state of Michoacán, which is the center of a highly indigenous culture, the Purépechas. And in that island, uh, during the whole of the, that night, the, the whole island is shining with candles and the indigenous population take their boats and they go to the island and they go to the cemetery and they spend the night in the cemetery, uh, but they bring food and they bring music with them because they are spending the night with their loved ones. So the connection between a celebration and a cemetery is very much a part of the, in the, the tradition and the way it's celebrated by our indigenous cultures in Mexico. And it's in any way something that we feel at all. It is a night, of, again, of celebration. There are children around, everyone's around. They are in a cemetery, yes, but they are, you know, uh, celebrating with their loved ones. To anyone who thinks that cemeteries are scary, I really encourage them to visit Oakland on a Saturday. You'll see hundreds of people walking their dogs, having picnics, uh, just exploring the site. It's the most alive place in Atlanta, ironically. <laughs> well, part of festivities for Day of the Dead involves making ofrendas or altars for the ancestors. Would you tell us, please, about the ofrendas that will be a part of the celebration at Oakland on November 6th? Yes, of course. It is a very much a part of the tradition of, this, of the festival. By the way, you, Lois, and many of our of the people who are listening to, to this broadcast might uh, remember that for over 20 years, there's been a very important festival that has been taking past taking place at the Atlanta History Center in Buckhead uh, yes. on, the, on the Day of the Dead. This is the same festival. And during that festival, now it's taking place in Oakland Cemetery, uh, a core part of the, of the celebration, it is a, a representation, an exhibit of altars. Uh, like I was saying, you know, the tradition involves basically paying homage to family members who have passed, and these altars is the way to do it. So it means basically setting up an altar with uh, elements in there. It might be food, it might be other elements there that have a connection to the person that we are paying, paying homage to. And that is something that happens in cemeteries, but it has grown so much that nowadays Mexican families put those altars, set up these altars in their homes during those days as a tribute to somebody, to someone that, that they love and they want to remember. We're going to have over around 20 altars that are being prepared by several members of, uh, of the Latino Mexican community, but also by non-Mexican uh, uh, members of the community who are setting up altars, and they're going to be part of a very large exhibit in this festival on, on November 6th. The altars are also going to be featured in and around the mausolea at Oakland. I'm really looking forward to highlight the similarities in the ways that people mourn and grieve and memorialize their loved ones. Um, I think there's a fairly direct connection to the act of setting up an altar and to the act of building an eternal home for your family. And so showcasing the similarities, I think, is going to be a really wonderful opportunity to bridge a lot of 
perhaps gaps in understanding. We will have, you know, signage around during the festival to indicate where the mausolea are, where the altars are, and people will be, will be walking around the cemetery, enjoying the cemetery, enjoying the music, but also visiting the altars while walking around the cemetery. So I think that is, a, I really love that idea. Uh, and everyone always wants to see inside the mausolea. <laughs> the gates to them are usually locked and closed, so it's always a fun opportunity for folks to get a peek in. I'm curious about the music. Will there be live music? Yes, of course. There will be mariachi bands. Oh. We, we're going to have members of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. We're going to have for the first time the Navy Band. The Navy Band uh, from the Southeast is going to be performing and uh, we're going to have singers. There's going to be a contest of Katrinas and Katrinas. Uh, you're probably familiar also with that tradition of the Katrinas. And uh, there's going to be a context of people. So, and we are encouraging people to dress up. We expect something very special. Who are Katrinas and Katrinas? Katrinas are a, a very popular portrayal that you might have seen around of a skull dressed in elegant clothing. Sometimes with a big top hat, if it's a lady with a very nice long dress and hats around them, and it's a skull wearing that. That is an image that is more of the, of the 20th century. It was mostly created by a famous Mexican artist at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. And he did it in that time as a sign of a criticism to the, uh, some of the upper class members of Mexican society at the beginning of the 20th century. And it was picked up. Uh, by other people in Mexico, mostly and mainly by Diego Rivera. Diego Rivera, of course, the world-famous Mexican muralist, uh, in one of his most famous murals, which is in a, in a building in downtown Mexico City, he portrayed in that mural some of the most iconic people in, in the Mexican society at that time. I'm talking about uh, the uh, late 30s, early 1940s. And, uh, and in the center of the mural, Diego Rivera Put it, put a Katrina, and so and once Diego Rivera put it in his mural, it exploded. It was everywhere, and now it's it's everywhere, and it's also, it's usually connected to the Day of the Dead, but its origin is is different. Very much uh, socio-political from Diego Rivera, doesn't it? Both seem? both Posadas and Diego Rivera were highly active, highly political, and they have a they had a political edge into their uh, art. And, and that's the origin of that. Uh, however, of course, it's, it's, some of the Katrinas are very flashy and they can be beautiful. There's a lot of inventiveness around it. And uh, one of the elements that have been included in the festival for over 20 years, and it will certainly be present now in Oakland Cemetery, is you know people dressing up as Katrinas and they're gonna be pr uh, participating in a, a costume contest. There are cash prizes for people to, to participate in that. So that is also a beautiful thing to see. And we've talked about music, the beautifully decorated altars and the costume contest. What other traditions are part of festivities for Day of the Dead? Well, well, traditions always involve music. And as you can probably imagine, uh, this is Mexico, so it must involve food. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, so, so some of the food that is, using, that is used in the altars and some of the food that we in Mexico uh, buy and eat during this time of year is very specific. Probably the most famous one is the, the bread of the dead, el pan de muerto, which is a special kind of sweet bread that is used in the altars. Uh, and and, and it's, it has a very distinctive, form and uh, of course a lot of of that bread will be available it's already available nowadays in metro atlanta i have one one of them in my home right now by the way and uh, it's delicious i love it it's very good with hot chocolate and uh, and uh, it's, got, it's certainly going to be part of what we have there the other very interesting tradition is our sugar skulls I remember when I was a kid in Mexico City, you would go during this part of the year to certain parts, mostly bread, places where you would buy bread, panaderias, uh, bread, bread stores. How do you call that in English? Yeah. Uh, and in those places on this part of the year, they have the bread of the dead, of course, but they would also have skulls made out of sugar. Uh, and, uh, and, and you could buy those sugar skulls 
which were very colorful and they put names on top of the skulls. So for example, I would want, I always wanted my mom to buy for me every year, a small skull with the name of Javier on it. You know? <laughs> and to eat it, of course, it, it's not very good for my, for my teeth, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it's part of the tradition. So there's a lot of traditions involved in food. Uh, and again, of course, uh, it, it is, as you can tell, there's a lot of it that is attractive to children. Indeed. Mary, do you have any of your own experiences celebrating Day of the Dead? Only what I've been lucky enough to have shared with me. Uh, my background, I'm actually Cuban-American, and so this is not something that I have memories of, of a as a child. This is not kind of part of my family's traditions, but I feel incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to you know, work with those cultural voices of cultural authority that can share their their traditions with me. Ah. Well, speaking of children and this holiday being so appealing to children, five years ago, Pixar released the animated movie Coco, which highlights Day of the Dead. Is the movie something you would recommend for adults and children to watch in order to become acquainted with the holiday? I, I personally, I, of course, I enjoyed the movie a lot. Uh, my family did too. Uh, we think we, when we saw the movie and, we, uh, and we, uh, we came out of the cinema with a very good impression that the people who did the movie really made an effort. They made an effort to really go to Mexico to really understand uh, the deep roots of what they were portraying, and they were trying very strongly to be respectful. And I think they they did a, a very, very good job of that. I, I see it not as a complete portrayal of everything that it means, because of course, there's no way you can portray that in a, a you know animated movie. But, uh, but I think it's a very good start. It's a very good way to, you know, open the conversation about what it is. It, it is a good portrayal. However, there's a lot more than what you see in the movie. Of course. I was just thinking for very young children and parents, it might be a good starting point. Certainly. I think it certainly is. Is there a proper greeting for someone celebrating Day of the Dead? Do you mean in the sense like happy day of the dead or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, that's not something we do. That's not really something we do. We just ask, uh, what are you doing? Uh, do you have an altar? Can I go to your house and have some hot chocolate? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, it's not something we do like a happy day of the dead. No, nobody does that. Atlanta's Consul General of Mexico, Javier Diaz de Leon, and Oakland Cemetery's Director of Special Events, Mary Fernandez, speaking with City Lights host, Lois Reitzis. Oakland Cemetery's Day of the Dead Festival is this Sunday, November 6th, from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m., and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series highlighting local musicians. Speaking of music, today features Chrome Castle. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Music, where we hear from local musicians in their own words. Hey, my name is Craig Bennett, and I play melody guitar for Chrome Castle. Robert Lee plays rhythm guitar, Ashley Burton plays bass, and John Barnes plays drums. 
are an instrumental, surf, western, spacey, post-punk, indie rock band. I grew up in Macon, Georgia, and I've always had a pretty good ear for melody. And it finally dawned on me that I should probably learn how to play an instrument. I'm self-taught, and I moved to Athens to attend school and to play in a band, not necessarily in that order. I always liked the concept of being in a band. I like the camaraderie. I like the us-against-the-world mentality. I liked uh, how a band can become a family, each person depending on the other. Atlanta some years ago. I like how it's such a large, diverse city, but with small, interesting neighborhoods. I'm also a huge fan of the sports teams here. As far as favorite venues, I've always liked the Tabernacle. I think it's a cool place. And I like Terminal West. It's a nice size room. And the Fox Theater's not too bad either. We are about to record our second album, and it will be out in the new year. You can find Chrome Castle on social media or at chromecastle.net. There you can find out about upcoming shows and you can come out and say hello. Thank you for listening. Chrome Castle guitarist Craig Bennett. More information about the band as well as our series, Speaking of Music, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee stops by to talk about her time on America's Got Talent and how to deal with hecklers. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee brings to the stage Southern Charm and Rye Wit. It's been a big year for Larrabee. This summer, she competed on America's Got Talent, and in September, she released her first comedy album, White Trash Cinderella. She also co-hosts the podcast Cheaties and teaches comedy classes at the Punchline Comedy Club. When the comedian recently spoke with Lois, she began by sharing why she decided to audition for America's Got Talent. Well, you know, there's been comedians on in the past. It's the show is not really about comedy or about comics, but I have seen comedians go up there and attempt to compete with, you know, more traditional talents like singing and dancing and it's helped their careers. And I thought, you know what? I did pageants, as you mentioned, (laughs) I did, I did pageants for years and I used to put my comedy monologues up against way more talented people. (laughs) And so I was like, you know what? I think I can handle this. I think I am uniquely prepared to compete on a, on a multi-talent talent show. So I did. And it, it, it has paid off. So I'm, I'm very happy that I, that I made that decision. The judges unanimously loved you. What do you think charmed them so thoroughly? Well, I think that preparation is the most important thing. I was very prepared. I chose material for my first round that I had done. I could do in my sleep. So I was very ready to get up there and And then a magical moment happened where Sofia Vergara interrupted me (laughs) during my audition set. (laughs) And it so happened that I have a line that goes with that sort of a question that I do in my, in my set usually, but I wasn't doing it in that particular set. So in my longer sets, I normally do it. And it just came out so quick. And I think that's just 10 plus years of 
you know, doing thousands of live shows all over the all over the country that I was just ready. I was just ready to handle it. And I came back with that line and it sounded like it came out of nowhere, unbeknownst to them. That's a line I have, you know, and it just happened to work so perfectly. And I think that's what charmed them because it seemed like it was, you know, off the cuff. And that's what good comedy should seem like, you know, but it was, it was pretty wild that it happened that way. Even I was very surprised at that moment, but that's what, you know, that's what preparation gets you. Yeah, four unanimous yeses. <laughs> so what was the takeaway? What came after your performance on the show? I had really nice reactions online. So many people started following me and paying attention and, and being like, where can I see her? And, oh, she's going to do great in this business. And that was lovely. And they played, you know, America's Got Talent posts the videos and they get millions, millions of views. So that was really nice to be seen by the world because it's such an international show. But then the next step was I got voted into the semifinals. So I went on to the live shows and that's when things kind of took a turn. <laughs> that's, that's when Simon buzzed me on stage and, uh, and then all of those positive comments online turned to negative comments. And like I said, it was a wild ride, but by the end of the season, they brought me back for the finale and let me roast Simon Cowell. <laughs> so that was a treat. And then it was back to everybody loving me again. So I, I got a taste of what reality TV stars go through for sure. Yeah, that was, yeah, something else. Not pretty. No. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is obviously staged oh, and yeah. manipulated, but it's at the performer's expense. Which, mm -hmm. which seems unfair. Well, we don't hear it now, but one of the immediate endearing impressions of seeing you perform is your thick Southern accent, which is <laughs> irresistible. Oh, thanks. Would you talk about your upbringing in Georgia? Yeah, absolutely. I... I love when people ask where I'm from because I'd always say all over Georgia, <laughs> which I am. So my parents met in Warner Robins. We lived there for a while. As you mentioned, I, I make fun of them in my standup because they had me in high school. And, you know, that's that's always a, a rough ride when you've got teenage parents as kids. And then we lived in Warner Robins for a while. Then we moved to Cumming. We lived in Cumming in Forsyth County for about the same amount of time. All this is like six years at a time, by the way. So like six years, then another six years. Then we moved down to Glenville, Georgia in Tattnall County. Where uh, is which... that? Exactly. <laughs> that was the exact question I had when my parents moved there. So it is about 35 miles west of Savannah or something like that. It's it's around wait, 30, 30 miles south of or southwest of Statesboro and then maybe a little further west of Savannah. But yeah, down there in the southeast corner of Georgia, and nobody knows where it is. Even people a couple counties away are like, "Where now?" Mm. <laughs> it has like it has like one red light in the in the city, and yeah. Then we lived there till I graduated high school, so another six years, and then I moved to Kennesaw to go to Kennesaw State University, and I've been in the Atlanta area for the past twenty years, and. Yeah, so I've I know I know Georgia. I know it pretty well. Sounds like you could give tours. I could. <laughs> you competed in pageants for mm -hmm. 14 years. Yes. And you have an interesting perspective on it. Would you <laughs> share that life? <laughs> I don't I don't know if I can say on public radio <laughs> what I say in my stand up. But no, it was it was kind of not an option for me to not do it. I had to perform. I was a, I was a ham as a kid. I knew I wanted to be a performer. And during that time that we were in Glenville, I didn't have access to like a theater program or community theater and pageants were the thing. I mean, it's South Georgia. It's what you do. If you're a boy, you play football. If you're a girl, you do pageants, right? So I signed up, I signed up for a pageant at my school. I entered, I won, and the rest of the school was not happy about that. I hear I came in as they used to call me, go back to where you came from Yankee, oh. you know, cause I was, I had moved there from North Georgia. So that, that was a qualifies Yankee. qualifies you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. So they were pretty mad that I came in and, and won, but I loved it. It was a high, it's much like comedy, right? It's a, it's a, you, you get up there, it's, it's instant gratification, you know, you perform and then you are rewarded with, you know, rhinestones and flowers and <laughs> you, you got to do it again. You can't do it just once. You're like, oh, I can keep doing these. So I had a blast and it was a good challenge for me because, you know, there's skill to it. And I loved to learn and, and watch these other girls who had been doing it since they were toddlers. And I learned from them and I really enjoyed the challenge of getting up and trying to win. And as soon as pageants started to add in, because I was about 13 when I did the first one and they started to add in talent portions. And then it gets to where you get older, you do the swimsuit portions as well. And it gets to where you have the opportunity to make it to Miss America. If you, if you compete in the preliminaries that get you there. So that's where I spent the, the final years of my pageants. I did trying to get into the Miss America pageant, which I got close several times, but most importantly, i I won scholarship money and I paid for most of my college from doing it. So yeah, it worked out in the end, but yeah, my <laughs> specifically unique perspective on it is it all ultimately is silly. You know, it's, we're up there wearing swimsuits and, and acting like, you know, no, 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 it's for the scholarship money. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no need, there's no need to wear a bikini and five inch heels to get scholarship money, you know, but we defended it at the time. And looking back, it's just, it's all very silly. But, you know, I, like I said, it, it, it prepared me to be tougher skinned out here, you know, to do things like America's Got Talent and to do things like stand up comedy. You know, it's, it's hard for a heckler to, to take me down because, you know, I had, <laughs> I had judges, judges telling me if I was uh, good enough or not when I was a teenager, you know. You also have very much of a feminist perspective. But that judginess does not come out when you're talking about pageants. It's tough. It is a conundrum. And I know that people are always like, yeah, but you're, you're such a feminist. How could you have done that? Well, I guess at the true core of feminism, right, is, is equality. And we should all be able to respect each other's decisions that we make to make it to our end goal, you know? And that just happened to be what I had access to at the time. And I, I took that opportunity and I made the most out of it. And I took control of my future. I took control of, you know, I had full control over what I wanted to do on stage. Yes, there were swimsuit portions and all of that, but I chose to do that uh, and, and happily. And it helped me, you know, gain confidence and, and it kept me fit and I, I was proud to do it at the time. Like I said, looking back, I, I could have maybe pushed a little further. I should have maybe, I don't know, gone against the grain. Now, now when I'm looking back, I'm like, cause you know, this is a while ago, but I'm like, man, maybe I could have made a statement. I could have like worn a big potato sack and gone out barefooted and <laughs> been like, take this, you know, like I could have, I could have done other things, but I don't know. I think it is very feminist of me to have worked so hard in a system and made sure to stick to who I was. I never bent or broke from my views and my passions while I was up there. Every time I had an opportunity to grab a microphone, I was speaking up for other women, speaking up for what I believed in. And every time I got to do the talent portion, I chose to do what I wanted to do. I had many directors say, hey, but you have dance experience. Hey, you could learn a little song. You could do something else. And I said, no, I want to be funny. I'm a funny person. I think it's more powerful to, to get laughs from an audience than just, oh, and you know, some applause. So I preferred to do comedic monologues while I did it. And I felt like that was my little, my little protest while I was doing pageants, but not so little. Now talk about art imitating life. You had a role in a TV series, Queen America, yeah. set in the world of beauty pageants and starring no less than Catherine Zeta-Jones as a yes. ruthless coach. <laughs> you played an online host. Yeah. Lace, what did you think of Queen America's portrayal of the pageant scene based on your experience? I And people are going to hate this because everyone wants the pageant world to be so much more cutthroat and dramatic 
than it actually is. And so shows like Queen America, which what a fantastic opportunity. I I shared the screen with Catherine Zeta-Jones and it was, I mean, I still to this day can't believe I met a, an Oscar winner and, and was able to work alongside her on set. But shows like Queen America and there's so many other pageant centered shows and, and movies and all that, they, it's very exaggerated. And because that's what people want, right? People want, they're like, oh, it's a bunch of girls. Well, they clearly all hate each other. You know, they clearly try to sabotage one another all the time. And like I said, people don't want to hear it, but that's not true. I made my best friends in the world <laughs> when I was in the pageant system because I was meeting a bunch of other girls who came, you know, came up in their small towns and did the best that they could for themselves to try to, you know, make it to the big city and and the way to make it out was to do pageants at the time. That's what we knew. And my very best friend to this day is someone I competed with in the Miss Cherokee County pageant in 2003, I think. And yeah, we still, I mean, I was in, we were in each other's weddings. We're, you know, very best friends. And, and we look back on that time very fondly and it just, it wasn't like it's shown on TV, but it's, it's TV. It's for entertainment. You know, <laughs> but this is this is heartening, and and it isn't one's impression. I mean, an outsider, mm -hmm. totally ignorant of the scene. That's not the impression. Mm -hmm. You co-host a podcast with another wonderful Atlanta-based comedian, Catherine Blanford. We spoke a few months ago. That podcast is called cheaties <laughs> cheaties all caps would you tell us your take on this show yeah absolutely and i i know that y'all had an opportunity to talk Catherine has also had an amazing year she and i both went from you know just doing stand-up comedy around atlanta and then struggling through the pandemic and then we came up with this podcast right when the pandemic Right, right before it started, actually, we didn't really know what we were getting into, but it was good timing. <laughs> but we came up with this idea because my ex had cheated on me and I caught him and I used to do this joke, which I actually used as the closer for my album that just came out. And it was about how I caught him and how I collected the receipts. As the kids say, you got to scroll screenshot, send yourself the screenshots well, she was in the midst of catching her ex who also cheated on her. She said halfway through, <laughs> halfway through catching him, she's devastated, she's angry, but then halfway through she thought, oh my God, I'm doing Lace's bit right now. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I selfishly loved that she stopped to think of my comedy while she was in the middle of, of ending a relationship. But she said she almost called me in that moment, but proceeded to do exactly what the bit said, scroll screenshot, send herself the screenshot. So she had the evidence, so he couldn't change the story. And as she was going through that, right after the whole relationship fell apart, she called, we were talking about it. And I said, well, if the two of us, you know, with our accolades and our, our drive and, you know, all of that, and we are both, I think really cool girls, you know, after all that, if we get cheated on, everybody gets cheated on. And I was like, let's help other people talk this out. And we said, let's start a podcast. And Cheaties just came to me because I, it all started because I pictured like a box of Wheaties or a box of cereal <laughs> where people are usually like holding a spoon or, you know, like a, like a cereal advertisement. And I thought, I was like, what if we held knives? We held big, sharp knives, and <laughs> we were on the cover of what looks like a Wheaties box, and let's call it Cheaties. And she was she was down, and we did it. We I, I started a podcast studio in my in a shed in my backyard in my old house, and now we are two hundred and thirty episodes in. My goodness, yeah. Is it possible to share one? favorite story you've heard on the podcast oh my gosh we have so many I know so, so the way it works people call and they'll tell us that they either they either got cheated on but we also take the other side too people will tell us that they cheated and it's fascinating it is fascinating what people will tell us so there is a lot in there if anybody wants to check it out definitely not safe for work not safe for kids 
but it is a great study on relationships and human behavior for sure. And more importantly, coming out on top too, you know, learning that there is life after infidelity and mistakes. And, and that's really the beautiful part that we get into. But like I said, there's been so many, I think this one was wild. There was, and I, I like this one because of the title I gave the podcast episode, <laughs> but she fell in love with a guy who needed a kidney. She gives him her kidney and then he cheats on her oh. months after she literally saves his life with her own organ. And of course, the big question was, you know, did you get the kidney back? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she did not. And she has forgiven him. And and that's just, I mean, I at the end of the, I, that shocked me more than anything was that she is okay. She's okay with the decision she made. She she gave it to him as if in the same way that you give a family member money. You're like, I'm not going to see it again. I'm just giving it, I'm giving it to you, you know, to help you out. And that's how she saw it. And she's really a beautiful person. And now she's in a, a great relationship and she's very happy. And we don't know what happened to the kidney guy, but... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we're hoping, hope he's doing well. Hope he learned his lesson. But uh, yeah, that was wild. That that was that was the most extreme, I think, case uh, because that's something you can't you can't take back. You know? No, no. No. And I did name the podcast uh, that episode "Are You Kidney Me?" And I was really proud oh. of that. So, <laughs> or you're so organized, right? I don't understand why, but. The field of comedy is still male-dominated. Yep, very much and so. And with, within that field, you are a champion for women. You launched the Laugh Lab, a course for women comedians that culminates in shows at the punchline. Would you tell us how you coach others to strengthen their comedy chops yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually just had a graduation show last night and it was one of the all-female classes. Over the pandemic, I started adding co-ed classes as well because come to find out more fellas were interested in braving the, the pandemic to come out and take comedy classes. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll, I'll teach these guys too. And that's been really fun. But I still do the all-female classes as well. That's still the, the anchor point of the Laugh Lab. And there's really not a big like secret to it. People, people are like, Oh, how do you teach these people to be funny? And what I do is I just allow them to tell their story. And then I help them organize their story and add structure and make sure that they are using the economy of words and that they are focused on quality over quantity, you know? So it's really tightening up stories, but I, I make sure. So my, my specific technique is to just tell them to start with their own lives because that's what I do I, I all my stand-up is mostly about my life as you've mentioned uh, my own experiences and I feel like if you stay unique to yourself then no one can ever accuse you of stealing jokes or you know trying to copy someone else you just got to tell your own story because that's what comedy is for we go to a comedy club to to see ourselves in someone else and to all laugh at shared experiences. So that's what I, that's what I tell all of my students. I say, start, start from your own life, you know, and things that have happened that are silly or embarrassing or weird or strange, or, you know, something that makes you angry <laughs> because, you know, everyone needs to just yell into a mic sometimes <laughs> about life, mm -hmm. especially, especially now, right. There's plenty of things to yell into a mic about, <laughs> Oh my. But, you know, it's it's all about, like I said, shared experiences and resonating with strangers and all realizing that we're not all that different. To your point of screaming into a mic, I read that one class you teach addresses how to deal with hecklers. It's a fantastic topic because uh, uh, one needs to be prepared when you're exposed as you are on stage and stand up, how do you, Lace, deal with hecklers? Well, the good news is when it comes to heckling, most people 
are, they're really truly in their head, just trying to help. So they're in the audience and they are either just loudly responding, you know, instead of clapping and laughing, if you say something they agree with or that resonates with them. And then they just go, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, she's right. <laughs> that's right. And that's really funny. And that, you know, it could bother some comics, especially new comics. It can throw you off. But I think that's always funny. And I always try to loop those people into the show a little bit and engage a little as long as they're friendly, you know. But if you acknowledge them, they they tend to calm down a little bit more. If they are scary, that's when the club usually or the venue usually steps in. I, I try to, you know, have a quick comeback. If something comes to me in the moment, you know, you can always kind of pick on them and, and get the audience on board to show them that they're, you know, being jerks. You can get the audience to go like they're, they're ruining the show. Right. And if they see a whole room of people agree, sometimes they just realize that they're in the wrong, but sometimes they don't care. And that's when the club or a, you know, a bouncer or another comic will usually go up and go, Hey, you got to get out of here and drag the people out. But I, I've been rushed on stage by someone. They didn't hit me or throw anything, but they they got up in my face and it was a much older man. So there comes that thin line of like, uh, should I be respectful? And, you know, <laughs> or, you know, and, and then you're scared because you're like, they could hit me. They could take me down. I don't know what's about to happen. But yeah, thankfully the club got in and grabbed him and dragged him out. So that was that was nice, but um, thankfully, indeed. So let's go mm-hmm. back to gentler topics. <laughs> I'm curious about established comedians who are role models, both for you and your students. Are there any who exemplify, in your estimation, peak talent and command of the stage? Oh, absolutely. There, that's that's the best part of being in the stand-up comedy world. Is I don't know if non-comedians, if civilians, realize how many stand-up comics there are, right? And and it takes forever to get to that point, and it's very rare to get that famous. But there are so many more at the local level, and I'll I'll say, for instance, one of my one of my favorite big name stand-up comics is uh, Maria Bamford. She is absolutely incredible. If people are unaware of who she is, she's been doing comedy for 30 plus years. I think she started in the late 80s. She is a consummate professional. She is always working on her craft. She never stops. She's always writing a new hour. She uh, has done it all. She's written for TV. She's written for herself, obviously. She's starred in shows. She's starred in commercials. She's done it all. She's done a little bit of everything and never stops working. And, And she just happens to be one of my just favorites, just as far as style and genre. She has a lot of voices and she's incredible. She just, she's never stopped. She's never just like relaxed. And I think she's a great example of a working comic today that people could easily look up and find her content. But on the local level, like I said, there's just so many more that deserve that amount of recognition, but, you know, may or may not ever make it there, but I've watched crush you know, in front of two people or in front of a hundred people. And, uh, I'll, I'll shout out someone in Atlanta who I absolutely love, who's been doing comedy. I think about 13 or maybe a little longer, uh, years, Katie Hughes, incredible comic, her, uh, like writing wise, she's, she reminds me a lot of Maria Bamford. She never stops writing and she never stops working. And she is currently writing in addition to writing her standup uh, and always writing new, new things. Her album came out uh, two years ago. It's called queen of the castle. It's so incredibly funny and so good. And it, like I said, I mean, she needs to be recognized on national level. Hopefully one day she will be, but she's also now writing pilots. So she's pitching TV shows all the time and she's doing it from Atlanta. And I think, you know, that's the coolest thing to me is, show showing people like I've done like Catherine's done like so many other comics have done uh that you you don't have to move to New York or LA to make it Atlanta is a hotbed of talent and the entertainment industry is growing every day here and I just I love the fact that we're all doing 
big things and working towards bigger things while being able to stay in the South. Atlanta comedian Lace Larrabee. Her new comedy album is White Trash Cinderella, and you can catch her live at two upcoming shows. She'll perform at Red's Beer Garden on Monday, November 7th, and you can catch both Larrabee and her equally funny Cheaties podcast co-host, comedian Catherine Blanford, at The Earl on November 12th as part of the Red Clay Comedy Festival. More information is on our website, wabe.org. This weekend, you can have a romping, chomping, and stomping good time in the Cabbage Town neighborhood. The annual Chomp and Stomp Festival returns with a chili cook-off, bluegrass music, and a 5K race. Chomp and Stomp music director John Durga paints a picture of what the festival is like. Chomp and Stomp is a nonprofit fundraiser, and it's a volunteer-led event. So the chaos may be a little daunting for first-timers, but I like to describe it as a train wreck into a mountain of pillows. You know it's coming, you can't stop it, but it's going to be full of love. The centerpiece of the festival is definitely the chili competition. Casual participants and restaurants go head-to-head to see whose chili is best around town. There's also a ton of music, numerous bluegrass bands and alt-rock bands that play throughout the day. There are five stages, 23 bands. 15 of those acts are brand new for us, and seven of whom are driving more than 100 miles to share their gift with Atlanta. More information about the Chomp and Stomp Festival and a schedule for the day is available at chompandstomp.com. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Artist Climate Collective's new ballet film series, Art to Action. Plus, we'll get details on this weekend's upcoming Irish Fest Atlanta. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website. There you will find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelly Kanabi. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and I invite you to connect with City Lights on social media. We are at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.